Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. If you have your Bibles in front of you, if you would open them to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read a little more today than we have been reading because I want to put this in its best context. We can look at it line upon line and put our own context in it, but it's, sometimes it's very important to understand to whom and why is Jesus specifically speaking these words. So if you found Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now remember, Jesus is not only addressing his disciples, they are the ones that are near him. But Jesus has already seen the crowds, and so he knows there's already a collection of people, a a gathering of people that are there that are listening to him teach. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit... For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot shall pass from the law till all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, as we process this message this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit's anointing to illumine our minds so that we may be able to see not only what we hear, but what you say to your church. I pray that this message, as difficult as it is, I pray that we would uh, 
that we would know how to process it, that you would give us insights for our own life and for our church for a time such as this. We love you and we thank you for uh, the nearness that we have with you to know that you do never leave us, you never forsake us, and you link arms with us as we obey your, your teaching. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says. In Jesus' name, amen. The nutritionists tell us, and we know this for sure, that we are what we eat. Scientifically speaking and medicinally speaking, we are what we eat. For whatever it is that we take into our body, that is the energy and the nutrition that we live in and we can process. It affects the way we move. It affects the way we feel. It affects the way we think. But while we see this naturally, I think we have failed to see it within the spiritual realm. We have failed to see it in our world, whether we're saved whether we know Jesus or whether we do not know Jesus, whether we have our questions answered or whether we have not had our questions answered yet. If we feed continually upon violence, upon excitement, upon erotica, upon everything that the world has to offer, materialism and money, eventually those things that we feed on, we will begin to personify them and we will crave them and we will become those things. We will become what we eat. We become what we take in. We are the sum of what we ingest. And what we ingest, we produce. Now, we do not like this truth. In fact, everyone else may know these things about us, but sometimes we live in oblivion regarding it. We say things like, not me, or I'm not susceptible to that. Or that doesn't bother me that much. But it is a natural law that what we take in is what comes out. In fact, a great scholar once said, so as a man thinks, what? He is, so is he. Actually, that's Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7. The things you think, you become. The things you think, you become. Now, it's hard for you to hide your actions, in fact, our actions are often what we are known by. People don't really say, what kind of person are you? They will say, what do you do? We're known by what you can see. But now I want you to, I, this is going to get really personal for just a second. But I want you to ask yourself this. How would you feel if everyone could read your mind? If everyone knew every thought that you think? So all of a sudden, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt because there's much about our lives that we can keep hidden. But whatever it is that we think about, that's who we are. That's who we are. Now listen, you can convince everybody else that that's not true. And honestly, most of us are convinced in ourselves that that's not true. But I want us to understand that. This is one of the reasons why I think Job teaches us when he says that he had made a vow with his eyes not to look upon a young woman. Why? Because I know that that is a path that leads to destruction. So I'm gonna make a decision. Whatever I look at is what I'll think about and whatever I think about is what I'll become. 
I also think of, of other things like what Paul said. If there's anything, the list that he gives, if there's anything of virtue, think on these things. Why? Because you will become what you think. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let me ask you an honest question. Don't process this in a group. It's scary. What are you hungry for? I mean, really. What are you, what are you desperate for? We live in a world where we're not afforded many luxuries of desperation. Most of us don't live desperate. But scripture tells us that's what the word actually means here hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a sense of desperation. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's a sense of desperation. What are you desperate for? What do you crave? What are you seeking with every fiber in your being? And probably a more telling question is, what are you satisfied by? It doesn't matter whether you're saved or you're unsaved, whether you're right with God or you're not right with God. The question's the same. What are you pursuing? What are you pursuing with your energies? What motivates you for living? How will you know when you have arrived? To what point would you say, I am living for this end in mind? Materialism? Money, a 401k, some kind of position that you long for, some kind of influence, some kind of notoriety. What is it that makes you get up in the morning? What's your first thoughts when you think, why do I get out of bed? Most people don't say, let's see, do I have a reason to get out of bed? Well, you might have over the last four months. <laughs> do I have a reason to get out of the bed today? Is it to make life easier in the future? Is it to, so you can amass possessions? Is it the material? Is it the relational? And it seems that this is an option because as we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, we can see that blessed means to have God's favor or God's approval. It actually means to flourish. You will flourish if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will flourish. Who doesn't want to flourish? Most people don't wake up in the morning and say, how am I going to flourish today? But Jesus said, this is a choice that you must make. This is not something that's just granted to you, a desire that you have naturally. This is why he has to command us to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Because it is an act of the will. It's not an act of spiritual maturity. It doesn't just come with time. It just, there's not a day you wake up and you say, boy, I am the, I'm the, actually the best person I know. Well, some people may say that, but we're not the best judges. And here's why. You will always judge yourself by your best intentions. Now, what's unfortunate is you won't give anybody else that benefit. 
You judge everybody else by their action. But you judge yourself by your intention. So we're not the best at listening to this sermon. So what you have to do is not listen to what you're telling yourself right now. We have to listen to our track record. We have to look at the results of our hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Are you engrossed in the pursuit of possessions? Everything that you can get, bringing things into yourself, whether you can spend it or control it. Everything that you can do to make you feel more worthwhile, more valuable, more accepted. Or is it as Jesus actually required in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, in the same sermon where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness and then what? All these things will be added unto you. And you know what that sounds like to me? Matthew 6, 33. It sounds like Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied be filled. What is the righteousness that Jesus is talking about? Well, to some, it's some, and I'm probably halfway a product of that. I've known it now for some time, but it's some form of uh, legalistic prudishness. That's what righteousness has looked like to me for much of my Christian life. It's a list of do's and don'ts. You want to be righteous? Check the list. Here's what it looks like to be righteous. Here's what righteous people do. If you want to be righteous, do these things. But obviously, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Righteousness isn't about a list. It's not about checking boxes. Righteousness is about virtue, not values. Virtue. Who am I? What is on the inside of me? Not what can I check off, but who am I in here? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might, what? Become the righteousness of God. Become to be. Not to know, not to feel, not to act, to be. That's why this is the fourth flourish. The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. I have to have a mental awareness of my sin. The second, I need to mourn. I need to feel the weight of my sin. Then I also have to respond to that in the way that I live my life my meekness, my humility. I have to be able to live publicly what I truly am. And I have to be able to know how broken and weak and foolish my life is so that Christ may be seen in me. That's what meek looks like. It means to have a social knowledge of my sin. And now here we are talking about who we are on the inside Hungering and thirsting after righteousness is nothing short than seeking the glory of God exactly the way Jesus did. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
and as it is found everywhere else where there is an insatiable desire for the will of God, the glory of God. To hunger and thirst after righteousness is to hunger and thirst after a person who has become and has placed that becoming in me and you. We're prepared to hunger and thirst after just about anything. Hunger and thirst after spiritual maturity, that's lofty. Who, who among Christians don't want to be spiritual, spiritually mature? That's why we read all kinds of books and go to all kinds of classes. We pursue that. We want that. We can hunger and thirst after real happiness and making good decisions that fills us with joy and, and you know, deep down in our hearts. We can hunger after the Spirit's power and to be able to see the evidence of His work Listen, if we don't want that, there's something seriously wrong with us. We can hunger after uh, witnessing skills and opportunities to be able to share our faith with those outside of Christ. We can either even hunger after spiritual experiences. But is that a hunger after righteousness? Is that a, is that a hunger after righteousness? It's not a hunger after righteousness. We've convinced ourselves that it is. But I want you to see the progression. We've already seen. I've already talked a little bit about it today. But these are a progression. You can want those things apart from the progression. But if you will live poor in spirit, mourn, meek, the byproduct of brokenness in our sin and mourning our sin... And walking in humility, the product of that is emptying ourselves of everything that brought us to that moment. Life is not about achieving and amassing and bringing things in. Life is about getting rid of the rot, emptying ourselves out entirely. And what am I going to be filled with? So often we try to add Jesus on top of our pile of ambitions. But the truth of the matter is to walk with Christ is to get rid of everything in this world that the world values and to replace that with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's when you get it all. We're satisfied by far too less. That's why I say those things, those Christian things, those good things are so much less than righteous because it's not changing who we are. It changes what we know, changes how we feel, might even change how we behave. But this is where our virtue begins to change, where our affections begin to shift. We live in an age increasingly uncomfortable with clear, tight, moral categories. And I'm going to talk about morality for just a moment. We have been over the last couple of weeks. But instead of speaking, and, and I remember even a time, maybe, and I'm, I'm from northeastern Kentucky, and so, you, you know, they, similar to here, it's a little late in experiencing the cutting cutting edge of trends and thoughts and philosophy of our day. I don't mean that in a 
deprecating way at all. I just mean sometimes we live a little sheltered and things happen to us a lot later than it happens to the rest of the world and it's almost too late. It's already got into the DNA. Let me explain what I mean by that. I remember a day when people would stand up for what was right, not how they felt. Instead of speaking about what we believe is right, now we say, well, that really doesn't line up with my values. I hear that all the time. You know, that's your truth. That really doesn't line up with my values. I guess I understand the sentiment. I think it's an incredibly slippery slope. We've become morally ambivalent. So much so that we hesitate to take a stand. Say an ethical issue comes up at work and you know what is right, but you act like you didn't see it. You act like you didn't hear it. Why? Because you're probably a prude. You don't want to be classified as holier than thou, the righteous one, the one who thinks they're better than everybody else. I get it. I walk in that tension myself. But it's because, it's not because we have become enlightened, it's because we have lost our moral courage to have an absolute this is right and an absolute that is wrong. And we can no longer speak on behalf of God himself who is the one who started the whole thing to begin with. When the church can't speak on behalf of God, who are we spe- on whose behalf are we speaking? C.S. Lewis described this moral ambivalence as men without chests. People who lack conviction or moral fiber. We often can't imagine taking a stand because we've been captivated by something else. We need men's applause. We need men's approval. And we even tell ourselves, well, if I am too assertive, I won't be able to share the gospel with them. We've been captivated by the subjective values of, our, of the self. And Jesus says this, listen, and I know it's the very thing that we hold on to, hoping to change the world with it, but Jesus said this, it will never lead to flourishing. Life says it will, Jesus says it won't. You see, the modern self, especially in our society, prefers values over virtues. Transparency, kindness, Authenticity, boy, we hear that everywhere we go. This generation really loves authenticity. I don't think that's true. I think they value it. I don't think it's a virtue. Kindness, really? We value kindness in our country? Turn on the news. No, it's not a virtue, it might be a value. Authenticity, transparency. Listen, we have learned that values do drive success. The things written on paper are very important. But virtue forges character. The problem is, because of that, we seek success over character. 
What we achieve is so much more important than who we become. Look at politics, any of them. We don't talk about who they are. We talk about what they've done for us. Virtues are firm. They're unmovable. Values are soft. Let me use another couple of illustrations. We say we value family, but we lie about porn addiction. Which one's true? We boast about community, but we very rarely ever practice hospitality. We declare that we value all life, but we have pretty strong opinions that prove otherwise. It's easy to value things. It's a whole nother thing to live based on virtues. And that's what this society is missing apart from Jesus. Values over virtues. What good is a value when it can be so easily ignored? Now we need to pursue higher, better, deeper, beyond values into virtues. And then we don't have to spell out our values. They come as a byproduct of who we are. What we value is obvious because of who we are. They produce themselves. You don't have to tell people what you value. They can look at your life. This is why the virtue of righteousness is so important. Because it helps us sort out every other thing. Because what we take in is what comes out. We take righteousness in, that's what comes out. We don't have to be concerned about every little issue that comes up and have to have an opinion. We just have to be concerned about one thing. One thing. What is it? Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Having God's identity upon us. Seeking the righteous. The righteous has to ask one question. What did Jesus say? Well, there's three types of righteousness. All three of them are found in Scripture. I'm going to give them to you very quickly. We're not going to elaborate on any of them. But the first is legal righteousness. Legal, like law. It's, it's the righteousness that we, that we read about in the book of Galatians and very often in the book of Romans. It's the imputed righteousness that we get from Jesus Christ. It's like a, a legal contract. Right? I am righteous because Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. Has nothing to do with me. It's Christ's imputed righteousness to me. Now this only applies to Christians. Righteousness that comes from Christ, his righteousness becomes my righteousness. His holiness, my holiness. His ability to keep the law and the holy rules of God has been credited and imputed and imparted to my account. That's how you get saved. Now listen, if you are trusting in success, notoriety, your worth, your value, your goodness, or your works to save you, you can forget it. Because there's no righteousness there. There's right works, there's good things, 
But in order to have the righteousness of Christ, you have to recognize a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that means following the will of Christ in your life. It's the only way to experience the rebirth and the transformation that comes from the Holy Spirit is to declare that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins and to walk in active obedience with him. That's legal righteousness. So many because of this value and this act of morality, uh, in, in, even in the church, practiced in many churches, we feel like if we could just tip the scale, we have these things we don't want to let go of, so if we do more good, we'll tip the scale and we'll be declared a good person and God lets good people into heaven. Listen, it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. God doesn't let good people into heaven. He doesn't send bad people to hell. Well. What, what do you mean? Well, it's pretty simple. Those who have declared a hope and the trust in Jesus Christ, doesn't matter how good or bad they are, they get to go to heaven. Those who reject Jesus Christ and choose to live by their values rather than their virtue, they spend eternity in hell. No matter how good or bad they are. Because good or bad is not the merit. Christ's righteousness is. That's legal righteousness. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. I believe he's talking about moral righteousness. We'll learn about that in just a second. Out of moral righteousness flows social righteousness. What is social righteousness? Martin Luther King Jr. said, no, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like the waters and righteousness, that Hebrew word is sadiq, until righteousness rolls down like a mighty stream. He calls on the biblical virtue of righteousness that's found in Amos chapter 5, verse 24. I would read it, but Martin Luther King Jr. just did. He was talking about racial justice for African Americans. Amos was talking about active justice, social justice for the poor that Israel kept beating up on because they were living in their own ways, in their own values, and they had trodden down all of their virtue. And so in response, Amos is calling upon God to bring about both personal and public righteousness. Psalm 17 also calls upon God for righteousness. This is social righteousness because David is surrounded by these violent men who are making his life miserable. But here's what David said in Psalm 17, verse one. Here a just, surprise, the word is Sadiq. Here a just cause, O Lord, and attend to my cry. Cries out for justice using the word righteousness. He describes the wicked in relation to the, uh, to the righteous and he says that they close their hearts to pity and they're lurking in ambush. But David calls, confidently calls upon the Lord to exert righteousness. He also appears to the Lord as a savior to those who are in need of a refuge. We see that righteousness becomes social because first it is personal. 
A righteous person takes up the cause of the oppressed and contends for justice. That's why it is so important for us to understand the three types of righteousness in Scripture. There is a legal righteousness that we get from Christ. We, we become the imputed righteousness of God. Because of that, it affects our own personal moral righteousness. When that happens, it can affect social righteousness. I've got a whole sermon built on this, but I'm not going to have time to give it all away. So I'm going to give you the real quick takeaways here. All right. That's why when the church tries to battle the social justices of the world without virtues of Christ himself, it cannot win. When you have humanitarians around the world trying to solve problems of social injustice, we can't solve racism without the gospel. We can't solve poverty without the gospel. We have to have the legal righteousness of Christ so that our lives are changed by the virtue of Christ. That's when there can be societal changes. But try to change society without the moral virtues is impossible. We're all left to our own decisions of what seems right or what opinions we have or what experiences we've had. And if we're not super careful, we're prone to replace God with our own vision of justice. What is this world supposed to look like? How are people supposed to feel? How are people supposed to think? And we start lobbying for our cause that we haven't even taken in consideration. What does the kingdom of God look like? Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse 14, he says, and you remember, Paul has this magnificent transformation on the road to Damascus, right? I mean, literal transformation. He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You have this this transformation that Paul received, the imputed righteousness of Christ, because of that, his life was radically transformed and all of his morality is shifted and changed. And because of that, he wants to bring social reform, which is the gospel, everywhere he goes. That's what righteousness looks like. It starts with God, but it flows into me and out of me. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, and then again in verse 20, you see that the word righteousness is used several times. In fact, the word righteousness is used seven times in totality throughout all of the Sermon on the Mount. But blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We're going to get there. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that, this is verse 20, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Listen, they didn't know the righteousness of God. They were apart from that. They may have started with morality, but you see what moral righteousness gets them? Hypocrisy, self-centeredness. They, they felt like they were better than everybody else. But in, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
You see, there is a higher righteousness than mortal righteousness. Jesus wouldn't be saying this if there wasn't a righteousness higher than moral righteousness. So this is the moral righteousness that we're talking about. This is, this is the moral righteousness that Jesus is talking about every time that he talks about righteousness in the book of um, in Matthew chapter 5. This is why I think James says faith without works is dead, right? Faith without works is dead. So this righteousness is a, is a righteousness to prevail, goodness to prevail in my life, my heart in the world, the increasing amplified thirst after the sense and the need of God in my life. Remember what Jesus said, the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, right? It's the greatest commandment. The second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself, this is where Jesus says that, that loving God includes being loving God with all your mind, loving God with all of your heart, and loving God with all of your feels, all your emotion, all of your actions. Now listen, I want you to watch how righteousness works and how the Beatitudes works. Poor in spirit, Mourn, meek. What is that? What are those three in the progression? What is the result of living in humility before the Lord? Hunger and thirst after righteousness, right? That's where the all comes in. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Because you're going to be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And that's when you will be satisfied. I think of Noah. Wow, Noah. <clears throat> Noah's a little bit of an anomaly because Noah is the first man in Scripture that's called righteous. And in fact, God himself calls Noah righteous. And this wasn't written until after Noah's life was over. So we have the ascription of Noah. Well, Noah built the ark and there hadn't even been rain yet. That's, that's a lot of faith. Then right after the flood, Noah got drunk, embarrassed himself to death in his nakedness. Not such a good day for Noah. In fact, there were curses to the family that came as a result but what is Noah's, what is God's declaration of Noah? Righteous Noah. Why? Because God looked at the totality of who he was. Not defining him by a moment in time, but Noah pursued the will of God. Did he, was he flawless? Was he perfect? No, of course not. But the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. That's what Noah did. David was a man after God's own heart. Wow. That's in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. A thousand years later, after Noah slept with his neighbor and murdered her husband. Why? Because righteousness looks 
at the totality of what a man's heart is doing. What is he, what is a, yes, we make mistakes, but we can always have the choice to choose the righteousness of Christ. It is up to us to hunger and thirst after it. God is not looking for perfect people. God is looking for people who will see him as perfect and choose that imputation of his perfected righteousness in their life. And then it will begin to change the way we think. And when the way we think changes, the way we behave changes. I wonder if when God says you will be filled, if we would be satisfied with what God wants for us. I think that's, that's a huge question. If God, so, you know, have you, ever, have you ever eaten something that you didn't necessarily love but you did eat it. And then somebody, have you ever eaten something, maybe your dinner and then somebody offers you dessert and you're like, I'm too full. I have done this before. Many, every time I eat, I eat too much. Okay. And then sometimes I don't know there's dessert. And so I eat too much and then there's dessert. And I think, well, if I'd have known that, I wouldn't have eaten so much. Now, now I'm miserable. So sometimes we would say, you get to a point where you eat, you eat too much of something that you didn't really want and then you can't take in the thing that you really should eat. Or maybe we can talk about vegetables if we want. I'd prefer to talk about hot fudge cake. But how often have we said, no thanks, I'm full. But boy, I wish I could. I think we have become so filled up in this world with things that are so second class, third class, or even straight from the pit of hell, that when whatever it is that God is offering us that would satisfy us and fill us up, we would say, no thanks, I'm already full. So what is it that you want to fill your life? Money, power, fame, influence, peace, all of those things, all of those things are cheaper and lesser. There's a verse in, uh, in Psalm, one of the Psalms that says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so does my, my soul thirst for you, O Lord. Jesus said, this is this panting, this, this desperate desire. I mean, the many commentators talk about what, what, the, what the writer had in mind was a deer that was running from a hunter and was so thirsty, wasn't gonna be able to keep up, needed to drink. I think of what Jesus told the woman at the well. Do you remember what he said? Oh, if you knew who asked, you'd ask, you'd ask for this water. If you drink of this water, you'll never get thirsty again. Many times Jesus uses this as an illustration. If you drink of my water, it will turn into you as living water. Listen, if you are going to be satisfied by the things of this world, you're going to stay hungry and you're going to stay thirsty because the world will not, cannot satisfy. When Jesus speaks of this, this is actually in perfect present tense which means it's a constant reality. Blessed are those who are always hungry and always thirsty 
they will always be satisfied. There's more, there's richer, there's deeper. Can you imagine Moses seeing the burning bush? If I would have seen the burning bush, I would have written a book. I would have told all about it. And I would have sat back and I would have conducted interviews. But Moses went on to raise his staff and part the waters and speak to rocks and water come out. Moses went on to, to see pretty extraordinary things. He saw bread on the ground every morning. He saw clouds by day and fire by night. And you know what Moses had the audacity to say? Lord, can I just see your glory? Enough's enough. No, no, no. You don't understand. The more I see, the more I want to see. And what did the Lord do? All right, hide right here and I'll show you my glory. I think of Paul who raised men up from the dead, who experienced the sound of heaven itself, who ran into Jesus on the road to Damascus and later we know that he had another encounter. In fact, Paul was even taken up to the third heaven and experienced some time there and couldn't even tell us about it. And what did he say? If I could just know him in the power of his resurrection, I just wish that I could know him. What do you mean know him? You've had conversations with a dead man who came back to life. I know, but you don't understand. I am hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I have this insatiable desire to be satisfied only with Jesus and the life that God has called me to live. So, church, Let me encourage you. You can't jump from one to four. You have to have a knowledge here that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none, what? None righteous. No, not one. You need the imputation of Christ's righteousness in our life. You have to have the knowledge of sin, the brokenness of sin, you have to be filled up with humility. Then and only then will you know what to hunger and thirst for. And it's so good to know that we're in a company of people who are learning to do that day by day. So know that you are not alone. You're not an outsider. But we need to pray that God would reveal those things that distract us from his best. We need to be able to identify what is our hunger and what is our thirst they came to Jesus and said, you probably should eat lunch. And what did Jesus say after leading the woman at the well to, to himself? No thanks, I've already eaten. Lord, we love you and we thank you. <laughs> what, a, what a shrouded message um, this is. Uh, just tucked away here, quick statement. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled, satisfied. Lord, we do want to be satisfied. I'm just afraid we don't know by what. So Lord, help us to put down every worldly thing, everything that we say we value. We look good on paper. But Lord, I pray that our, our virtues, that we would have this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus. 
And so, Lord, I just ask that you would do a work among us. Those that are, are here this morning and, and listening this morning, I just pray that, that, you would, uh, that your spirit would get a hold of our hearts. And, Lord, if there's those that are here this morning that are not in a right relationship with you, Lord, they've, that we, we've settled for some, something less than your transforming work to be satisfied by. We've listened to our own flesh, to our own appetites. But Lord, I pray that we would put down the worldly appetites, quit telling ourselves that, that we're okay and listening to what the world tells us, and that we would see that satisfaction, that, that, that things that we pursue always leaves us short. We still feel guilt. We still feel shame. We still feel empty. And every accomplishment, every success leads us with just still this state of emptiness. So Lord, I pray that today we would be reminded that as we pursue our relationship with you, as we agree with you, as we become the virtuous, the righteousness of God, that we would be satisfied, content, at peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you've, you've known, but you've never made a, a yes to Jesus, if you, before you leave today, if you, if you want to have that conversation, I'd love to talk with you. If you're here today as a Christian and you've settled for the, being the best the world has to offer, but maybe not being the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Listen, God's not looking for perfection. If you've messed it up, it's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but it's okay. Step back into the righteousness of Christ and you'll be satisfied. If you need to stay and pray for a moment, feel free to do that. I love you and so thankful for the opportunity to be your pastor. And I, I pray that as things come up in your life, we pray, still praying for you regularly. I have a massive list of things that were people were praying over and things we're praying for. So just know even though we're not together like we want to be and face to face and high-fiving and smacking and holding and hugging and all those things that, uh, that we're still a family, brothers and sisters together. And, uh, and I love you. So love one another. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.